SAS Backwards is sponsored by Austin Lawrence Group, specializing in demand gen for SAS. It sure is noisy. I deleted 100 emails from vendors just this morning. Your buyer has gotten better at ignoring you, and you're going to need a big idea if you want to cut through all that clutter. Austin Lawrence is just the right agency to help you find it. So if your campaigns are falling on deaf eyeballs, let's talk. Visit austinlawrence.com today and let's build something bigger. Welcome to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, where we reverse engineer the success of fast-growing SaaS firms and explore strategies CMOs and CEOs are using to drive their businesses forward. Welcome to SaaS Backwards, a podcast that helps SaaS CEOs and CMOs to accelerate growth and enhance profitability. Today, we're turning the tables and putting our regular host, Ken Limpet, into the guest chair. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here and fun to be a guest on our own show. Looking forward to it. We wanted to do this because it's the new year. And of course, we want to put our predictions about what's going to be happening in SaaS marketing. So we thought that we would get some input from Ken and what he's seeing out in the marketplace. But before we do that, Ken, why don't you give us a little bit of background on the agency and what qualifies you to make these profound predictions that we're about to hear? Wow, profundity. That's a high bar to jump, but I'll do my best. Well, thanks, Jason. So our business, Austin Lawrence, is a demand generation agency that's been doing software marketing for probably 30 years. And our focus has always been on how marketing can drive sales success. And that's taken different shapes and forms over time as the kinds of companies or the way companies go to market has changed and the way the media choices available to us have kind of changed and evolved. But Essentially, the mission remains the same. How do we get marketing to prime the pump for sales and make it possible to grow a business over time to meet management objectives, whether that's growth just to retain control of a profitable business or grow to an exit? That's our mission and we stick to it. In terms of my background, I've been doing this work here at Austin Lawrence for 34 years, worked with probably more than a hundred software companies at this point. And that's a really powerful asset as a marketer to have deep visibility into, you know, dozens and dozens of companies, their decision-making and outcomes, and be able to bring that into any situation that I'm asked to work within. So I think I'm qualified, but we'll find out at the end of the episode, you guys be the judge. Well, with this first topic, and this is a big topic, but I think we have not only some experience with clients, but also experience with our own business here at Austin Lawrence, and that has to do with outbound prospecting. So what would you think is going to happen in the world of outbound prospecting in 2024? Well, anybody who's got the responsibility to reach out to customers who don't know you yet knows how hard that is. It's been hard forever, but the returns on that effort have been harder and harder to come by. I'd say the last five years, maybe six years, the trend has been declining return on cold outreach. And when you go five, six years and more in history, 
salespeople controlled an awful lot of the sales process and they could therefore target possible buyers and be seen as a source of somewhat credible information. And that's really changed over the last five years where buyer preferences have been to do their homework in larger and larger part where they engage in a sales process. Take other trends, the really mega trends here of people doing remote or hybrid work. So, you know, office phone systems are not really in play the way they used to be. And it's just gotten tougher to reach people and their own preferences have migrated to being more in control of their information gathering. So I don't think any of those things are going away. I think they're going to be more true. There's probably not a lot more movement in that direction. I think hybrid work is the average now. People will be full-time in the office. People will be full-time remote. But the vast majority of your prospects are going to be in some kind of hybrid role. It's going to be harder to cold call them. But that, I don't think, is the end of outreach. Contextually relevant outreach is, I think, the name of the game. So I think the, the way to do outreach effectively is to have a better understanding of who the people are and the business that they're in before you start to engage with them. And you're going to have to be a multi-channel, multi-person prospector. I think, Jason, you like to call this combo prospecting. So we're going to be reaching out on LinkedIn. We're going to be using the telephone. We're going to be using one-on-one emails. We're going to be using maybe even postal mail to try and cut through at our target accounts. And obviously you can't lavish this kind of attention on what aren't important accounts to you, potential accounts. But for those that are in your most highly cherished accounts, you know, the strategic accounts that you want to reach, you're going to have to customize your outreach to them and learn other ways of, of being relevant. And I think that puts a burden also on marketing to build resources that are attractive to prospects based on an understanding of the problems they face in a way that you may not be used to as a marketer being so driven by, you know, really a challenger narrative. And I think it's important when we look at challenger marketing and challenger sales, not to confuse that with what used to be the small brand trying to compete with the larger ones. We're really referring to a couple of books by Matthew Dixon and Brett Adamson, the challenger sale and the challenger marketing, where we need to understand the business problems that our prospects are facing, perhaps even better than they do, so that the content we create forces a conversation, forces a rethinking of our business as prospects. Like, wow, that's something I hadn't thought of is what the desired response so that we can get into a conversation. And so I think that's what is going to change. And it's changing all around you if you're not building content that's strategically different than it might've been three or five years ago. You got to change that playbook because the need is there to be meaningful from the outset. So I do want to dig in on the challenger sale just a little bit more because we here at Austin Lawrence really like that series of books. And at first glance, they are more kind of sales oriented until you get to the second in the series, which is the challenger customer, which is really focused on more like thought leadership content and what it has to do to move somebody off of status quo. And I think that there's a real opportunity for organizations to do some better sales and marketing alignment 
by using challenger narratives. What do you think about that? Well, I think you're absolutely right. We had Brent on the podcast a few episodes ago, and I think it was a little bit of a surprise to them how marketing people were trying to make methodology out of the challenger customer. So I'd say, you know, we agree 100% that sales and marketing alignment can be a great byproduct of this more organic view of what thought leadership should be doing, organic to the getting people to want to know you process. And that's sort of an inelegant way to say it, but business development, whether it lives in sales or marketing organizationally, is about trying to get people to know you and your organization and to want to know more. And done well, it really makes for little daylight between sales and marketing because we're now building toward the same KPIs with content that can work both for sales and marketing. So I think you get it as a byproduct and you don't need to bring in an army of consultants to build it. I think if you, as a marketing leader, are listening to sales calls on Gong or other AI-based sales recording systems, and you're talking to customers on a regular basis about what matters to them and where their pain points are, you're going to be building assets for the sales team that they can use to start driving conversations with prospects. And I think that's an important distinction, really leads us into the next topic, but we should be talking about not building MQLs, but building conversations, creating customers. So demand generation, I think we need to be a little dogmatic in how we describe it and say that demand generation is creating future customers and demand capture, the old lead generation, is that those methods that allow us to capture people who are in market today we just want to make sure we get included, but we may not have the opportunity to influence too much their decision-making because they're so far down the process of getting information. So the idea of educating the market, this elusive thought leadership exercise, but if we educate the market on the problem and the possible solutions and why our solution is worthy, if not the best and worth considering, then we're targeting all those folks who aren't yet already pretty far down the track. And, and that's a good thing. Do you think there'll be more pressure on marketing leadership and teams to support the sales process or measure to KPIs that are sales-based? I think they're merging their KPIs. I think the smart organizations, the marketing people are no longer sending leads over the transom saying, here's your MQL, go for it. So there's a number of things that are happening. One is the BDR function often is ending up in the marketing department. And that's a little healthier because now when we send an opportunity into a sales process, marketing has taken a little more ownership of it. It's a little more real and realistic that a sales resource could do something with that opportunity. And I think the KPIs changing will also drive that alignment. You know, if our initial KPI is a meaningful sales conversation. So that's relatively, it's a little mushy as a KPI, but if salespeople or an SDR could say, yeah, you know, I spoke to Mary and maybe she's not ready today, but you know, they understood where we were coming from with our writings and agree on the problem. Now it's a sales problem or process to get them to budget and timeframe. Right. We have need. Do we have the right people involved? Well, we might have to get, if it's an enterprise solution, authority is going to be distributed among five, six, eight, ten 10 people. 
but we can start having a sales process because we've had a meaningful sales conversation. So I would be lobbying for, and, and I think it's happening without my influence, that people are starting to measure things that they can do together as much as things they do apart. So marketing is taking a little more traditional sales responsibility. Again, that, you know, the BDR function often coming into marketing and then sales and marketing are walking together in the first couple of stages of that pipelining. And then even as the prospect starts to really get into a buying motion, I think the most effective marketing organizations are supplying content and other resources to the sales team to help close the deal. So that might be in the form of case studies, might be in the form of a deep and meaningful economic impact calculation, something like the Forrester TEI applied later. I think you know marketers tend to want to put that on their website and you know use it as a lead generation device. I think it might be much more effective when we're trying to get rational agreement around the emotional part of the sale. So push that kind of resource later into the sales process. So yeah, I mean, I think alignment around those KPIs is part of that healthy process. And if you haven't read the challenger customer yet, you know, so I think it's almost a mandatory read, even though it's like six or seven years old. I think it's as relevant, maybe even more relevant today than when they wrote it for marketers. Absolutely. And I know that you also talked about on our next prediction, more traditional techniques coming back. And you can almost point to companies like a shout out to ReachDesk. Uh, we had Amber Bogie on our podcast long ago, but that's exactly what they do. They're kind of taking a traditional approach to gift giving in the sales process. But what do you think some other traditional things are coming back? Well, I think it's good, but let's not leave gift giving so quickly. I think oftentimes people misunderstand the role of giving a gift in a sales process. One of my favorite things to do is to give a gift that's going to improve the situation of the prospect. So that might be a book, you know, there's some great books, business books, and Jay, I know you read a lot of sales and marketing books, as well as, you know, periodical literature. And when you have a conversation with a prospect and you realize there's a blind spot that your solution can help them solve, you know, you might use that as one of your gifts. And it might be that, for example, we have an episode coming out on the podcast. We might appear after that with this. I'm not sure where we are in the production cycle, but pricing, right? So as we speak with CMOs and CEOs about their business, a big blind spot is pricing. And if we had a go-to book on pricing for software companies or go-to web resident resources, which we do have, sharing those is a very valuable and important gift. So just a company swag is not so much on my radar as important in a gift, though that can work too. Or, you know, if you know that somebody has an important celebration, a guy with a demand side platform wants us to buy advertising on their platform, sent me a bottle of champagne because he knew I had something to celebrate. You know, I haven't forgotten that. And I think that's the idea is you want people to remember you either for thoughtfulness or usefulness of the gift that's given. But other traditional techniques, I really believe in postal mail. Postal mail is underutilized by business marketers, but traditionally has been one of the most effective ways, again, for strategic accounts. It's a thing we used to call undeniable. If you sent somebody a, a pretty big box, anything bigger than a shoebox, 
they would have to open it. They would feel compelled to see what's inside. And it gives you that three to five minutes of uninterrupted attention to get your point across. And if in that box is a resource that they can use to understand your solution, that's a big win. But even the number 10 envelope, sorely underused and lots of ways to use that kind of mail against target accounts, you know, make your investment consistent with the value of the account. You can also use a priority mail envelope, any CEO with an assistant that gets something that looks like a FedEx envelope is not going to open it or unlikely to open it and screen it out. And if you're going really at the very utmost top targets, use a real FedEx. That's something they're sure not to open because it's just too important. So let's be a little traditional and experiment with it. Like anything else, A, B, test it. And some of those things can be integrated with your CRM for like letter writing. So lots of tools that I think are highly valuable. Definitely want to test it as it is expensive if you get it wrong, but you do have to to kind of figure out the right mix. But a great way to break through the noise because the inbox is too crowded today. You know, lots of content out there, social media, it's just getting way too crowded. And I think the direct mail through the post office is being overlooked. Yeah. I mean, even the junk I get, you know, to Austin Lawrence in postal mail ends up getting open just in case. So it's not as bright a light as all these other marketing tech driven avenues or channels, but can be highly, highly effective used correctly. And I think as marketers, that's our job. You know, the shiny object is ROI. Well, let's talk a little bit about custom publishing and where you see that maybe making a comeback. Maybe this prediction is more, you know, wishful thinking. But, you know, I used to, long time ago in the 90s, doing software marketing, would publish a magazine and just send it to my target audience, which worked really, really well. That's what we mean by custom publishing. And that kind of took on a new life with the web and custom publications. But then I think it kind of went away and now it might be back a little bit. Yeah. So this is a thing where we've all done our time in custom publishing in one way or another. And here's what I think. For marketers that can build good attribution engines, they can then justify more and greater investments in their content and engagement assets. So this sort of has to go hand in hand with attribution that is going to survive the meetings with the CFO when the money starts to get big, because custom publishing is not inexpensive. And when we say custom publishing, we either mean literally a magazine, a print magazine that we distribute and hand carry into sales opportunities, or a web-based publication like we had built sometime back now for Kodak called Chief Packaging Officer. I mean, these are six and seven figure investments per year, but in the right hands and with the right product and the right justification, they can be extremely influential. Adobe for a long time maintained quite a presence on CMO.com and they only did so because it was so profitable to them. So I think you have to bake in attribution and ROI measurement into the front end of custom publishing projects. There are ways to really implement the learnings from the challenger customer, the research and experience-based thought leadership that's going to make people kind of stop in their tracks, take notice, and begin to take action. 
but you're going to have your attribution engine in place. And you want to do that because otherwise these things won't survive the moving on of their initial sponsor. You know, we've seen that with companies like Xerox where, you know, they've had custom publishing a few times. And every time the CMO changes, whatever custom publishing project they were sponsoring would get stopped because it was a vanity play as much as a revenue generation play. And so that's where attribution and, you know, integrating it in your sales motion really important. Because if it's driving real opportunity for the sales team, then we'll let you stop. That's right. So moving on to the next topic, wouldn't be a predictions podcast in 2024 if we didn't talk about AI. So where do you think AI is going for SaaS marketers? Well, I guess I'm not the only one trying to take this one on, but here's what I think. The smarter marketers are going to use it as a catalytic, not as the way to make a product. And what I mean by that is they're going to use it for idea generation, for outlining, for content that is not as critical or that they don't need to drive search effectively. And that's going to change a lot over the next year or so. What search effectiveness is going to be is also being driven by AI. So the smart marketers are going to use it as a tool and not unlike the way desktop publishing didn't do away with art direction, AI is not going to do away with great writing, great thinking, or great creativity. I think the danger with generative AI is that the flood of content that we've been treated to is going to get worse. So there's going to be a lot more content, making it more difficult for prospects to know what is and isn't worth paying attention to. So that's going to put an onus on us to be a lot more thoughtful about our writings and effective in getting that content in front of people that might act on it. So let's say that we're going to be having two or three times the content we used to have. If we look a year out, I'd say, you know, the amount of content teams are going to generate per person is going to go up. The mean is going to drop in quality. One of the things that's been talked about is that these large language models, especially ChatGPT4 and whatever comes next, they're processing the current internet. So they're indeed training the model on some of its own output at this point. So the quality of that output is also going to go down. So maybe my prediction is that large language models that are trained on my proprietary content are going to become more important for people that want to generate content in the same style as they might have hundreds or thousands of pieces of content that they've already built. So I think that the content being driven off the wider web may become less important than content that I've created, training these models and giving them, making them more of an assist for us as we build out our content. When we get to creative, you know, I'm kind of a traditionalist on advertising creative. That said, we've seen some great headlines written by, I think we were in Canva this week and saw a very cool headline written, taking a very dead ahead headline concept and making it pretty creative. So I think there'll be use for that almost as a point solution to help me brainstorm where I want to take a creative idea. But I don't see in the short term anyway, art directors being replaced by AI any more than they were replaced by desktop publishing software, you know, 28, 30 years ago. These tools are interesting and good 
far as they go, but I don't think they're going to make the leap that a really good copywriter, a really good creative person makes, really good art director makes when he or she takes a creative exercise on. They're just, they're not creative, they're ruminative. I think it should really be called ruminative AI because they sort of ruminate on and regurgitate a very condensed and interesting version of what we've already created ourselves. And what about advertising? Where do you see that going in 2024? Kind of given the breakdown a little bit of SEO and search and, you know, emergence of, you know, really LinkedIn, but it being an expensive channel to advertise in and not being an intent channel. Where do you see the ones being successful with advertising? Well, we have some other big issues happening, right? We're going to lose the cookie maybe for real this time. So that means, you know, chasing people across the internet is going to get a lot harder. So I'd say the implication is we're going to have to build relationships with our site visitors. And when we advertise, we're probably going to be making in some ways more traditional choices about how we place ads because we won't have the same kind of information that we have today. So for example, if we want to sell software for accounting, we might have to purchase advertising where we think people that have accounting software problems live, as opposed to being able to get their intent. So we're going to lose some of that visibility into where people go and what they look for. That's going to be by design. We're going to lose that insight. You know, advertising is always going to play a role. I've been doing the business 34 years. We've always been buying paid media. You have to pay to play, especially if you don't have enough of your own audience. So I'd say the larger your proprietary audience, the less you know you need to pay. But almost everybody has to pay to drive people to their content and engagement assets. I don't see that changing, but maybe how effectively you can do it or how you go about building those audiences is going to change a lot. When the cookie goes away for real, that's going to change an awful lot. I think there was an article in today's journal or yesterday's journal that you know most advertisers are just unprepared for the death of the cookie. So I would say death of cookie means big shakeup in advertising in 24, if it happens. All right. Well, that sounds like a good place to land the podcast. Ken, been a good discussion about what you think is going to happen. How do people get a hold of you if they have questions on their own? So I'm easy to find on LinkedIn slash in slash Ken Lempit. My email's kl at austinlawrence.com. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do so wherever podcasts are distributed. And Jason, you're our CRO at Austin Lawrence. How can people reach you if they want to take us up on our offer of a free messaging and content review? I would say the easiest thing to do is email me at jm at austinlawrence.com. Very simple email, which I really like. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for hosting today and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, brought to you by Austin Lawrence Group. We're a growth marketing agency that helps SaaS firms reduce churn, accelerate sales, and generate demand. Learn more about us at www.austinlawrence.com. You can email Ken Lempett at kl at austinlawrence.com about any SaaS marketing or customer retention subject. We hope you'll subscribe, and thanks again for listening.